Welcome to BIB Today, the daily podcast from the Business in Vancouver newsroom. I'm Kirk LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief, and our podcast is brought to you today by the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association. The DVBIA supports, promotes, and represents the shared interest of 7,000 businesses and property owners in the central 90-block area of Vancouver's downtown core. What makes for a great leader? There are, of course, many theories, many trends and thoughts, but my guest has invested three decades in examining the traits of three pivotal entrepreneurs, Bill Gates of Microsoft, Steve Jobs of Apple, and Andy Grove of Intel. They shaped the digital revolution by defining the, the personal computer, how it was going to be used. And, but they share attributes that Harvard Business School professor David Yaffe has chronicled in his book, Strategy Rules, written with Michael Cusimano. Yaffe, a professor of business strategy, Innovation and Entrepreneurship is in Vancouver on Thursday to speak to the BC chapter of the Harvard Alumni Club. The sold-out event means your only opportunity to hear from him is right now. So I'm delighted he has spared some time to join me. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Listen, we should start by noting that these three, and, and you've known them well, um, you've known them personally, they may have shared attributes, but not necessarily shared personalities. How, how do they differ that way? No, it's it's interesting because when I first started to do research on this book, most of the people I knew in Silicon Valley thought it was a terrible idea because they they didn't know three more different people. <laughs> um, Bill, you know, Bill Gates. Most of us know his background was from a privileged family in Seattle. He was a real a real geek, even in the context of uh, the 1960s, where he was he was doing mainframe computing. And of course, we know he dropped out of Harvard in his uh, sophomore year to start Microsoft. Um, Andy Grove, on the other hand, was born in Hungary. He was a Holocaust survivor. His parents had to give him to a Catholic family in the countryside to survive the war. And then in uh, 1956, he hates communism and literally walks out of the country without a penny to his name, makes his way to the United States and uh, goes to City College of New York, ultimately gets a PhD in chemical engineering, and of course helps to start Intel. And Steve Jobs is equally familiar as uh, the son of a Syrian father and an American mother, was adopted by a blue-collar family in Palo Alto, and he was truly the ultimate flower child. Uh, did ashrams in India, undoubtedly many drugs, uh, dropped out of college <laughs> in his first semester yeah. to start Apple. And when you think about that kind of profile of these three people, their their backgrounds and their personalities couldn't be more different. I want to get into their common attributes very shortly, but, but I, I have to ask you a couple of other questions about them. Which one do you think was capable of dealing with failure best? Probably... Steve, in the end, I mean, Steve was really the only one who ever really failed. Uh, uh, yeah. You have to remember that that he was fired in uh, 1985 from Apple. He went on to start Next, which was largely a failure. Uh, I mean, he, he got lucky in the end that it got bought, bought out by Apple. But as a company, it was largely a failure. And he even said in, in a very famous address at Stanford uh, graduation in the early 2000s, that the best thing in his life was being fired because it forced him to reevaluate, to really rethink what it meant to be a failure and what he had to do differently. And I'm not sure he would have built the apple we know today if he hadn't gone through that experience. And, and when you study leadership, the, the ability to deal with 
uh, a grand failure, maybe even a humiliation, has to be part of your, uh, your, your elements. Yeah. In fact, in the book, we talk about um, how all three of them actually did very well when they ultimately came to the realization that they had made terrible mistakes. <laughs> and that's an important part of leadership, is that ability to recognize you make a mistake, to then change your position and pivot what you're doing as an organization. And a lot of CEOs literally don't have the, the boldness to be willing to say, we screwed up and we're going to do something different. They tend to stick to a position because they're afraid it'll embarrass them. Yeah, I, I I seem to recall Bill Gates kind of dismissing the the value of the internet at some point. <laughs> but uh, you know, they, right. they all they all went through their moments. It, it, so if if Jobs was uh, the guy to uh, deal with failure, maybe best of the three, was he also the most stubborn? Um, probably. <laughs> I, well, look, Steve was known as someone who would argue about anything, anytime, to anyone, <laughs> and. Um, it was very hard to get him to change his mind. But you know, in the book, we, we do talk about two very big, very bad decisions he made at Apple that most of us don't remember any longer. Uh, the first you know, terrible decision that he made was he refused to launch the iPod for Windows. Right. At the time, the Macintosh only had a, a little over 2% of the market. And if he had kept to that position... Um, Apple would be a shadow of its current self. It simply yeah. would barely exist today. But his his staff kept on fighting with him and fighting with him, and eventually uh, they convinced him that that he had to do this, even though he, he did it kicking and screaming. Hmm. And the other terrible decision he made that, that is a little more public is that um, when he announced the iPhone, he said there will never be an app store for the iPhone. He wanted Apple to control all apps, and had he stuck to that position, I argue the iPhone today would be, uh, I'm I'm afraid, just like a Canadian company called BlackBerry. (laughs) (laughs) Selling its patents. (laughs) uh, Right. That they simply would have have disappeared because uh, that turned out to be a, a critical element of the success of all smartphones. and. Ultimately, Steve figured out that he had made a terrible mistake. That makes sense then for us to then pursue your the way that you've identified, I think, five critical characteristics that frame their contributions. I want to explore them with you. And all three, of course, were visionaries, but you define their their qualities with a with a book chapter title, look forward, reason back. How did how did they apply that? So the idea of look forward, reason back is if you want to be a great strategist, it's like being a great chess player. Or in, in the terms of academia, we would say a, a great game theorist. Mm-hmm. And the idea is you have to look several steps ahead, figure out where you think the end game is going, and then reason back to what you should do today. And the hard part is not necessarily the looking forward. The hard part is then reasoning back and figuring out what are the actions that, um, that you should do. And the the argument basically is that what all three of these people were great at were thinking into the future, thinking forward, and what we talk about as as extrapolations of of today's events, thinking about what that means two, three, four, five years from now, interpret that extrapolation. In other words, what does it mean for my company? And it can mean something very different to different people. And that vision has to be very simple, has to be a few keywords or a picture. 
and then figure out what I should change and what I'm doing today. Yeah. And all three of them had a particular advantage in that they had an easy extrapolation to build their businesses off of, which is what we call Moore's Law. Mm-hmm. Um, Moore's Law was uh, actually created by Gordon Moore, who was the founder of Intel, who said that the the number of uh, transistors you can put on an integrated circuit should double roughly every 18 to 24 months. And the industry followed that law for roughly 50 years. Yeah. And what that meant was you were going to have a lot more processing power at at much lower cost every 18 to 24 months. Yeah, yeah. It was it was such a, a, a changing environment at that point. It's interesting that you also say that it, you know when you're you're looking forward and reasoning back that you're not reasoning back and wallowing over what happened earlier. You're you're trying to bring it back to the present and not too much to the past. Correct, and and I think one of the big mistakes I often observe is that people look backwards and then reason forward. <laughs> yeah, In other words, right. they, they look at their past, they look at the actions that they've done, they look at the mistakes that they've made, and then they say, here's what we're going to do differently. And this is a different way of thinking. It's saying, no, 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 we really need to think about where we're going to be three or four or five years from now and, and then figure out, forget about the past for a second, let's just figure out what we should do today in order to get to that, that particular place. Yeah. All three had the leverage if they wished to pretty well dismantle the companies they were developing, but their, their common quality was another trait of a great leader. And which was, they made very big bets, um, without necessarily betting the shop, betting the company. What what kind of self-control do you think that takes? That's key to any, any successful leader. If you're not going to be bold and you're not going to take risks, you're not willing to make game-changing bets, you're not going to change the game. And all three of them understood, not only did they understand that, but, but that was part of their mission. They weren't just in it to get rich, they were in it to change the world. And I think that made it a little bit easier because it, it enabled them to say, if we really want the world to be different, we're going to have to do things that other people are afraid to do. And then all three of them actually did a, a number of really powerful steps that ultimately changed the way we think about the world today. You um, you chronicle um, many things in, in these three companies and with these three individuals. But in the case of Intel, it actually turned its back on a better product at one stage. Uh, you, you know, this this to me was quite fascinating. Your conclusion about great leaders is that they they build platforms and ecosystems, not just products. What, what does that mean, though, in terms of bypassing some opportunities that seem there for the taking? Yeah, the, um, the idea of thinking about an ecosystem or a platform and not just products is that platforms today enable you to greatly expand the functionality and capability of, of, of a product because you're leveraging third parties and enabling them to take advantage of the core capabilities you've created and, and make it more valuable to your customers. Mm-hmm. So you may have a better product. In, in this case, the one you're talking about is Intel had built a microprocessor that was based on a technology called CISC for complex instructions at computing. And it was an, honestly, it was an old technology. It was, it was founded back in the 1970s. And there was a new technology called RISC, Reduced Instructions Tech Computing, which IBM had pioneered, 
that appear just in terms of specifications to be a better technology. But what Intel understood, or I should say what Andy Grove understood, there was a lot of, of flights and resistance inside the company to him on this, was that what was most important was not whether it was risk or sys. What was important was the ecosystem, which enabled people to write applications that worked on the Intel processor. And that's what made the PC valuable. It wasn't the, the processor itself. It was all the applications built on the processor. And when Andy was faced with this, with this choice, does he go to the better design or does he stick with, with what he had and make sure that he makes it better and better and better? He made the right choice. He didn't go to the better product. He stuck with the, the Intel architecture product that ultimately became the foundation for all the applications we have on the PC today. Yeah. Yeah, it's extraordinary and, and and a risk. By the way, I'm going to ask you a really trivial question about these three. Why is it Andy Grove, and 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 yet it's not Billy Gates and Stevie Jobs? Why didn't Andy like Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, on his book, he he put Andrew, um, but you no, know, I I never heard anyone ever call him Andrew. So. <laughs> And I never heard anyone call um, Bill Gates Billy um, yeah. or William. And I never heard anybody call Steve anything other than Steve. And, and as you said, I, I had the fortunate uh, opportunity to know all three of them personally over a very long period. So yeah. I, that's why I, I say Andy and not um, Andrew. Yeah, no, I've only ever seen him referred to as Andy. Um, So there are leaders who are like uh, sumo wrestlers, as you point out. And there are others that are more like judo masters. You conclude that great leaders have to exploit both leverage and power to do both judo and sumo. How did how did these guys turn that on and off, toggle properly? Well, the, the critical issue is when, when you're small, you have to find what find ways to use your size to your advantage, and that's what we mean by judo strategy. Yeah. And the person who is really good at that was Steve Jobs. Um, we have a phrase that we describe as the puppy dog ploy, which means you want to look weak and inoffensive so people don't get worried that you're a threat. Oh. And uh, what Steve was fantastic at was when he developed the iPod and developed iTunes, he was able to go around to the entire music industry and he literally said to them, um, what do you have to lose? We're a little tiny player. We only have two and a half, three percent of the PC market. Let us take all your music and put it on iTunes, and we'll give it a try. And that was a fabulous way of, of basically convincing the music labels to hand over their future to him, yep. uh, not recognizing the threat that he posed. Yeah. On yeah. the other hand, yeah. uh, a somewhat controversial part of the book, um, when, when all three companies got big, they tended to be more sumo-like rather than judo-like. Meaning they, they recognized that they had a lot of power and they were incredibly tough and sometimes, in fact, ruthless. Yeah. Um, you know, my favorite quote in the book was Bill Gates saying to uh, Steve Case, the CEO of AOL, I can buy 20% of you or I can buy all of you or I can go into this business myself and bury you. <laughs> and that's sort of a... Uh, and that, that was not atypical. Again, I, I heard Andy Grove say many similar things over time, and there's lots of examples of Jobs doing the same thing as well. Were, were those was that were those characteristics that that sumo characteristic? Were they already there before they really began their companies, or or did they acquire an attribute like that as they 
got bigger and essentially saw even how big they could become? I think all three of them were incredibly tough individuals. Um, one of the things that we argue in terms of their shared personality traits, never mind their different traits, was that, that in fact, um, they, they cultivated uh, ferocious work ethics inside their organizations. They, they, liked organi- they liked inside their companies to have intense debate. If you, didn't, uh, if you didn't fight with the CEO, you got no respect. Um, and even internally, they tended to be very intimidating to a lot of their employees, but they were also great motivators. Yeah. So a lot of that aspect of their uh, leadership was something that was built in from the early days of their, uh, their evolution and not something that just emerged late in their careers. Yeah, it, there is, a, of course, a, a cultish quality of leaders in, in, in organizations, and I think you, you kind of describe it as a personal anchor. And all of this, how, mm-hmm. how does how does this happen without it just being one big mess of narcissism? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, and part of the problem that we we try to explore is that it can be very narcissistic. Um, but the key idea when we talk about a, a CEO's personal anger is that they they have individual strengths that get embedded in their organization and uh, a focus for what they tend to do really well. However, um, all individuals, it doesn't matter who you are, you also have serious weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And a critical element of being a great leader is being able to understand what your weaknesses are, what you're not good at, and make sure you, you build a team of people who will fill those holes in your organization. And then you continue to learn. Um, I mean, again, one of the things that I know from all three of them is in some ways they were deeply flawed as traditional leaders. They could be, they could be awful to their people on occasion. Um, but what they were really good at were getting a very talented group of people around them to figure out how to, how to do the things that they didn't do well yeah. and not get too engaged in things that they simply shouldn't be doing. Um, again, I, I worked closely with Andy Grove for years, and as as he matured, and, you know, again, when he started, he tried to do everything, like Steve Jobs and like Bill Gates. Though, though Bill actually knew very early on that he wasn't good at things, and he brought brought people in to compliment him from the very early days. Uh, but but it took a while for both Andy and uh, and Steve to figure out that even if they were the smartest people in the room. That doesn't mean you should do everything. You need other people to take on those jobs. Otherwise, all you're doing is reducing your ability to have a meaningful impact on the organization. So, so was their sense of self-understanding at, a, at just a higher grade than a typical CEO's? I don't know if it was necessarily a higher grade, but, but I think it was a necessary grade, something that they, that they needed because they were such um, difficult personalities at various points in time in their career. They needed that um, that self awareness when when they didn't have it. When Steve, in particular, didn't have it in his early days, he got fired. Yeah, yeah. and um, I know even even in the case of Andy Grove, there was a lot of consternation on the board of directors about whether they should make him CEO because they were worried about those things. Wow. But um, in the end, um, Steve had figured this stuff out, 
you know, the, the difference between what I call Steve one and Steve two was dramatic because he simply said, I may be the smartest guy in the room, but I'm not going to do A, B, C, and D. I'm going to let other people do that. That's just not my thing. Hmm. And, and that was critical to his success. And the same thing was true of Andy. So I want to conclude our conversation with a question about another leader uh, in your midst and, and ask about how many of these traits he possesses. Donald Trump, how, how old does he, he grade? <laughs> well, uh, as you might imagine, that's a somewhat um, loaded question. But, uh, <laughs> I'm not beyond that I, as a as somebody, I'm not beyond that as an interviewer. So don't worry. <laughs> all right. So um, here's the way I, I look at at, uh, at Donald Trump. In terms of my five rules, what is he? Let's start with what he's really good at. What he's really good at is the tactical part about. I call judo and sumo. Yeah. You know, he's a small businessman. He, he knows how to market himself to punch way beyond his weight. And once he became you know, president, he has become a, uh, a sumo strategist in the sense of mm-hmm. that he can be a real bully. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, he loves to exercise power and he loves to exploit it. And in many ways, he's very good at it. On the other hand, I would say on all the other attributes that I say are critical to be a great strategist, he's, he is not at all good at looking forward and thinking about the end game. You know, he's much better at, at uh, thinking about what he wants to do yesterday or tomorrow, but not, you know, a year or two in, in advance. He, he, gives, he gives a new uh, meaning to living in the moment, I, I, don't you think? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, my second lesson is you need to make big bets, but without betting the company. I think um, he he has always bet his organization and bet you know bet the farm, which mm-hmm. is why he went bankrupt so many times. Mm-hmm. So he he simply is not someone who plays in that game very well. Um, my third point about building platforms and ecosystems, which means working with a, a broad ecosystem of partners, has never been a real strength of his. He, he likes to do things his own way, and the the idea around um, uh, shaping Maybe. the organization around a personal anchor. Here again, do I think, does he really know his weaknesses well? I would say probably not, at least from the way he discuss, he discusses himself as a, as a great genius. Um, is he good at filling the gap with great people, given the turnover in his administration and the number of people have gone to jail? That would seem to be a very good uh, um, example. And then you know, the final attribute I say is very important is a great leader has to learn. They have to learn new things because the world is constantly changing. Mm-hmm. And for a man who doesn't like to read, <laughs> who only likes to watch TV, his ability to learn is very limited. Do you think as a, as a professor in this field, you know, who's, who's looked at entrepreneurship and looked at leadership, looked at innovation, do you think history is going to study Donald Trump? Oh, I'm sure he'll be studied. Um, as an object lesson of something. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, but until he's out of office, I'm not sure any of us want to say what that something is. <laughs> well, David Yaffe, it's been a great conversation. I, I thank you so much for your time. I have a, have a good trip here to Vancouver and, and the area. And uh, uh, unfortunately, your, your event tomorrow night is, uh, is sold out. People can't get to it, but uh, they can maybe find you some other way through your book, Strategy Rules. And uh, I want to thank you for your time today. 
Thank you. David Yaffe is a professor of business strategy, innovation, and entrepreneurship in the Harvard Business School. Thanks a lot for listening to BIV today. I'm Kirk LaPointe. We have lots of events coming up. There's a conventional banking business uh, undergoing rapid technological change, and uh, we're going to explore what it means on April 25th with the Business Excellence Series, a panel discussion on the next big things in banking and finance. You can find out more information at BIV.com events. I'm Kirk LaPointe. Thanks a lot for listening to BIV today. We'll see you next time. 